HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're ringing in the start of our fifth season with dispatches from Portland, Oregon's biggest food festival, Feast Portland. We're bringing you words of wisdom on launching a food business from food blogs. Most acquaintances from high school have now tried to start a food or fashion blog in some sense and quit very quickly afterwards. To ice cream shops. Every city you go to, the salt and straw is completely different than any other city. We'll bring you insights and anecdotes about the business of the business. We were like, cool, we're going to do this. We're going to try to raise $75,000 and we'll see what happens. And it was like the most gut-wrenching, miserable month. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you listen to podcasts. Good evening, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I'm so pleased to be joined on the line by Mark Winnie. Mark is a food systems expert who has held leadership positions with several nonprofit organizations and food policy council councils. He currently serves as a senior advisor to the Johns Hopkins Center for a Livable Future, and he's the author of several books, including Closing the Food Gap, Food Rebels, Stand Together or Starve Alone, and his newest book titled Food Town USA, Seven Unlikely Cities That Are Changing the Way We Eat, which has brought him to the show today. Mark, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, What made you want to write this book, and why now? Well, I've been in the food world for, uh, well, nigh on to 50 years in in various capacities, from running nonprofit organizations to developing food policy councils and writing and so forth. You know, what has occurred to me, uh, which might be um, uh, a sort of a duh moment for a lot of people, is that food activity and the food movement is taking on many exciting dimensions all over the country, and particularly in places where you never thought of. You just never thought that there would be this much, you know, such an exciting food scene. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like I needed to go out and document that, and also to figure out why that was happening. What were the factors that were creating such vibrant activity in so many communities, especially, again, ones that were off the food radar, so to speak. And, uh, you know, that, so that was what motivated. So it's my history and my work and the desire to sort of understand a little bit better what's going on in, uh, in uh, you know, a lot of those red states out there. Mm-hmm. And so can you just tell us those seven cities um, so we know what we're talking about? <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's, that's the first question everybody asks. Um, uh, Portland, but not Portland, Oregon. Portland, Maine. Uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Alexandria, Louisiana, um, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, Youngstown, Ohio, Boise, Idaho, and Sitka, Alaska. Okay. So definitely, I would say, lesser-known cities. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, I think for the most part. Yeah. Um, okay, so and how did you go about writing this book? Like, what kind of research did you do, and what was your process? 
Well, a lot of the time was spent in those cities. I was, the writing and the research took place over 18 months. Um, I was lucky to have contacts in most of the places that I had selected. And I partly selected them because I had people that I could work with. Uh, having been around quite a while in the food world, I was lucky to be in a kind of a larger network that gave me access to, to these places. But I wanted regional diversity. Um, I wanted big and small. Uh, I wanted rural and urban. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, and I was, you know, again, trying to get, get a, a sort of a broad swath of cities. I probably could have, would have liked to have uh, picked up another two or three, but um, I just didn't have enough enough uh, firepower to be able to do that. So I think I got a good representation, however, with the seven that I selected. And then I spent probably at least a week in each place. Uh, often I visited it twice. A couple of them I went to three or four times. Mm-hmm. Um, I interviewed over a hundred people for in total for the whole book. So averaging, no, oh, probably 20 or so per place. And uh, that was the source of most of my information, as well as background research I did on each of the uh, seven cities. Okay. So in, so you're looking for kind of like a mix in terms of um, like uh, political, maybe diversity and, um, yeah. you know, connections that you had in the communities. Any other factors that drew you to these seven well, cities? Well, I, it was interesting. I mean, for instance, um, Jacksonville, Florida. I don't probably not most of us would say, "Wow, I'm going to get a great meal in Jacksonville, Florida." <laughs> I wouldn't. Or, yeah. <laughs> uh, or do I know? Or is there some reason that I want to go there um, that would be interesting? And in the same way, and so, and so people there would say, for instance, you know, our food scene has come a long way. Um, we used to make food and. You know, it might be great coffee, or it might be a great beer, or something. And then, and then um, they they'd say, "Wow, that was pretty good for Jacksonville." Mm-hmm. But obviously, that, that several years later, after they perfected their work and started to increase their skills and uh, get more support, they were producing products that were good enough anywhere. And that was kind of the I was interested in that progression. Why did that go from? good enough for Jacksonville, for good enough for Atlanta, or good enough for New Orleans. In the same way, I was in you know, a place like Boise, Idaho. I mean, Boise is generally a pretty liberal, fairly progressive place in a, a sea of red. I mean, one of mm-hmm. the reddest political states in the country. I mean, there aren't more than a handful of Democrats in the Idaho state legislature. So I thought, well, that's the kind of contrast I'm looking for. I want a place that says, why, why can it have an exciting food scene? Why can it come up with progressive policies um, when it's surrounded by you know, so much you know, pushback against government and so much sort of ideological you know, conservatism? Mm-hmm. And that, so that was, that was one reason, that was the reason I selected Boise. I said, wow, this is, you know, if you can do it there, you can do it anywhere. And yeah, I, that's really that. That was the lesson I learned. And I definitely I want to come back to Boise because I have a few questions about that uh, a little bit later. But in kind of um, continuing to, I want to lay the the groundwork a little bit about your your process. So we talked about um, what you know. We talked about kind of why you chose some of these cities, but they all you know seem quite different from we from one another. Um, and that was your goal. But I'm wondering if there is a, a commonality that you found between them. Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, I was looking for the the universal between these common themes that cut across all seven cities, but not just these seven cities. Themes that I think would be applicable to places anywhere. Mm-hmm. And among among the things that I found was that you know the individual entrepreneurship was really standing out. There was key people doing interesting things, and not always not always entrepreneurs in the sort of classic sense of the term. I mean, we found a lot of social entrepreneurs, people starting nonprofits, uh, farmers markets, uh, farm to school programs, uh, as well as restaurateurs who were sticking their neck out and trying to push the envelope in a certain place and with, you know, food that was more locally sourced or uh, menus that were not the meat and potatoes variety stuff that people were sort of generally used to. So it was that, that, that 
you know, those, those individuals, those entrepreneurs of different stripes were really the catalyst for a lot of the action that was there. Mm-hmm. The other key element was really the role of, of, of local political leaders often. I mean, the presence and the participation by local government was always a, a, an important factor. Um, I saw this, again, very much in Boise and Jacksonville. I saw it in all the cities, to, to some places a lot more than others. And where city hall might be absent or not not standing up the way they should be, uh, we saw other institutions kind of filling the gaps. Um, in Alexandria, Louisiana, for instance, I found a great economic development organization called the Central Louisiana Economic Development Alliance, mm-hmm. CLEDA for short. And they were, you know, take, taking the ball and running with it, trying to bring back an area which is really very much embedded in rural poverty. Um, but they, the thing that was interesting about this was that they were using food as a big part of their economic development strategy, which is not really the norm. Right. And so more and more people were saying food is an important contributor to our, our local economy, and we need to pay more attention to it. We just can't be sort of, you know, taking it for granted. Um, so that was, those are, I think those are a couple of the big, big lessons. But another yeah. one that was really intriguing to me was the idea of, of, of community, I almost called it community sanctioned entrepreneurship, meaning that the community gets behind certain ideas and certain people and certain initiatives. And it's not always a, it's not necessarily a business. Uh, sometimes it's a nonprofit enterprise, but you know, it's a community network builds around various actions as a way to support and nurture the new ideas. Um, this was really a, a critical factor in in much of the uh, many of the cities that I visited. And that that was inspired by individual action because you talked about you know at one of the first things you mentioned was that the like the thing that they all have in common these cities have in common is like the role of the sort of entrepreneur which yeah. made me think that it's kind of a little bit of a departure from um some of what your work has been historically focused on which is like the importance of community and collective action so was this a departure and like a surprise well, to you? it was it was it was a coming together it was a, almost a hybrid of you know the you needed an individual to sort of stand up and stick his or her neck out and say, this is something that, you know, I think can work. But at the same time, they were looking for the community to support it. And and they would come together behind the, you know, often behind the individual or behind uh, even the sense that we want to have a more robust food movement in our community. Um, and we all, I saw this as well in, in a, sort of another lesson learned was that every community had this notion that we have to take care of our own. We have to also pay attention to the people who are more vulnerable, you know, to the socioeconomic circumstances that are keeping people down. And paying it, they were paying attention to the, a lot of the justice concerns and inequities that existed in all of these places. And they were using food creatively to try to reach out to those people. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were, and they were also taking. I mean, just the fact that they would say, "We have a great farmers market, but we want to make sure that everybody can participate in this farmers market." So we're going to make sure that we're providing, uh, you know, various kinds of incentives, like what's known as the double up bucks program, where you double the value of SNAP or food stamps that are used at a farmers market. Every city had some version of that. Um, so, so, so each individual, it, just for our listeners, each individual can have, is it like a coupon that will give them twice yeah. the amount to use towards fresh health fruits and vegetables that, at a farmer's market? That's, that's typically the way it works. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's other versions of it, but the idea is to incentivize uh, SNAP food stamp participants to shop at farmer's markets and give them extra value. And so it's done in different ways. Um, I mean, in, in Sitka, Alaska, I found that they were actually had not just a farm-to-school program, but they had a fisheries-to-school program. So they're on the ocean. They had, they're surrounded by salmon fishermen. Um, they, were make, they made deals with the fishermen to provide salmon to the schools, which they otherwise wouldn't be able to afford. Mm-hmm. And they had a high, high percentage of children that were eligible for free and reduced-price school meals. And the fact that they could get an additional high-quality protein source for next to nothing you know, was a real, 
real benefit. Yeah. People were very proud of that. They're often very proud of the fact that they've done, they've gone a little, little extra, done a little extra mile here to take care to of their own. somebody. Yes. Yeah. I mean, my my that makes me think of like I don't see that at the federal level. <laughs> I feel like as Americans yeah, right no. now, you know, more than ever, we this idea of like taking care of our own is like antithetical to what it means to be an American to so many Americans. You know, yeah. like that's their impression, and so I'm wondering. I mean, why? Where is the disconnect between this happening, like at the local level, and places that are very conservative, like Idaho, and not, you know, within the broader community? Well, I think that you know, I don't hate to be so cynical, but I mean, taking care of our own these days, and from the perspective of Washington, means taking care of those who are already very well taken care of. Thank right. you. Oh yeah, there's and, that. <laughs> so I think there's. I think there were a number of. Everywhere I went, people are, are discouraged about the role of the federal government in addressing food issues. You mm-hmm. know, we're always right now we're fighting kind of a you know very defensive, taking a very defensive position. You know, on things like trying to uh, contain the damage that's being done, say to the SNAP program or to other federal programs that have traditionally been very helpful mm-hmm. in um, you know increasing the 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 effectiveness and the uh, quality of uh, local and regional food systems. But so, I mean, people are still very much aware that, you know, that we need to have those federal resources. They're critical to doing the, making the changes at the local level that people want to see um, occur, but they're not waiting. You know, they're not going to, they're not going to sit around and wait for it. So they have, and they take responsibility for the people who are there who, don't have the resources to buy the really good food that is becoming more available. So, you know, they're, they're taking action. They're both, you know, individually and at a project-by-project basis. They're engaging City Hall. Occasionally, they're trying to engage state government as well. But, um, you know, in the absence of, of the federal government, you know, they're, they're just doing what they can and getting by. Yeah. Now, the good news has been, I think, that in spite of our current administration and the general hostility toward, um, you know, more vulnerable parts of our country, um, these these resources are still flowing. I mean, they're flowing grudgingly out of Washington, but I mean, they're still there, and and people are trying well, to take advantage of them. What kind of resources? Oh, like pe- like public assistance, like SNAP and uh, National School Meal right. Program. Yeah, there's that, and there's also, but there's also a lot of grant programs. There's the, you know, the Finney program, which is the program that actually allows for the increasing the or incentivizing the use of SNAP benefits at farmers markets and other locations as well. In Youngstown, Ohio, they were using one of those federal grants to um, not just to help people get to farmers markets, but also buy more fresh produce in um, grocery stores, mm-hmm. of which of which they had very few in Youngstown. So you know, you're up against, in some places, you're up against food deserts, communities that, your neighborhoods that just don't have any place to shop. And, um, and they're, but you're also trying to get people to buy healthy food. So when you're able to provide a, a subsidy in effect that helps a local grocer sell more product or a farmer's market that's struggling in a low-income neighborhood to sell more product, you're really getting additional value. You're contributing to the economic strength of that area and those businesses at the same time that you're providing lower-income people with a chance to buy healthy food. Right. And so can you give us, I mean, you talked about um, Alexandria as using their economic development agency as really um, you know, focusing on food to kind of be a driver um, for their regional economy, local economy. Can you talk about how that um, organization is doing that? Give us an example. Well, I mean, they've, for instance, they have three people on their staff oh, that work okay. on food <laughs> systems. I mean, that's... Oh, okay, just know, on food systems. Okay. Yeah, just on food systems. I mean, that's significant. I don't know too many sizable uh, economic development organizations no, that have that type of focus. Yeah. There's, there's, they're out there starting farmer's markets. They're working with um, entrepreneurs who want to start value-added food businesses. Uh, they're helping to start um, everything from coffee shops to uh, supermarkets to, um, to somebody. Uh, there was a farmer who's getting into the mushroom business. Um, so they're, they're working 
both it's both a you know very individual small business scale, but also scaling up to larger enterprises as well. Um, you know, I, I probably should have asked you at the top. Actually, um, can you um, taking a step back define the term food movement and what that means? You know, to to you and how you kind of use it throughout the book. Yeah, well. It's a nebulous term and not one that's easily definable, but it's been, I think we can all generally, we're generally aware that, um, you know, we've seen enormous growth in things like farmer's markets. For instance, there's about 8,500 now in the U.S. Going back 15 years, there were only around 1,000 or between 1,000 and 1,500. The number of uh, farm-to-school programs has gone from almost zero to almost 50% of the public schools in America. Um, go to a, you know, go to a farm to table restaurant, go get a local microbrew, go get, you know, locally roasted coffee. Don't, and, and as you do that, savor it and don't take it for granted because it wasn't there 10 years ago. And so when I say food movement, I'm speaking collectively of all these, all these, um, projects and businesses and ideas, including policy initiatives as well, both mm-hmm. local. I mean, I, I work a lot in food policy councils. Go back only 10 years and you'll find just around 100 food policy councils in the U.S. Today, there's over 300. And just I mean, that's a huge leap in yeah. 10 years. So you, you see almost this sort of, almost an exponential growth in all these various food activities. Um all over the country. And again, they're taking place now in places that are more remote or, um, again, not on the foodie radar. And to me, it sort of says that this good food movement called a good food movement is now the new normal. It's not something that's only the province of an elite group of foodies. That was my next, yeah. My next question was going to be that, do you think that um, like local food and like the idea of a food movement is still elitist? Do you think it's moving more mainstream? I think it's totally mainstream. I mean, well, not more, not totally mainstream, but it is definitely moving mainstream. If I can get a, if I can get a good cappuccino or a good IPA in Alexandria, um, Louisiana, I'm, I feel like, you know, we're, we're there. We've yes. made it. We've won. You, you know, I have a, a question. This is maybe a little tangential, but, um, I also, you know, I, as a, in addition to hosting this podcast work, um, at a company that tries to connect people, uh, with local food from local producers. We're like an, we're an online farmer's market and grocery delivery service. And I still get pushed back time and time again by people saying, and these are not people who are, um, you know, economically or food insecure in any way, shape or form, fairly affluent areas. Um, uh, people always say like, well, it's too expensive. Your prices are too expensive. Farmer's markets, those prices are too expensive. And I kind of, you know, I'm just wondering what you would say to that in response because, you know, farmer's markets are like so, so important. Um, and I would say like core to the food movement. And if we kind of agree that we're moving away from this idea that, you know, fresh local food is elitist, it, I just have a hard time kind of like squaring those two ideas. Yeah, I know that's that is a very common argument. I, I honestly find it a bit a bit of a spurious argument. I mean, if good food is good for some one class of people, let's it's also good for everybody. Mm-hmm. Number one, um, I think that everyone is you know it used to be where uh, you, know, you could go back ten or fifteen years and say there was an elite, a certain degree of elitism to aspects of the food movement. But I think the consciousness has changed dramatically so that somebody who's engaged in, you know, running a farmer's market, for instance, is going to be asking the question, who in this community is not participating and why not? Is it because the prices are too high? Well, we also know that we want our small farmers to succeed. So Mm -hmm. prices do have to be at a certain level where they can do that. But the way to address that, the way to try to level the playing field is to provide those incentives for lower income people to participate so that that market is not elitist. Now, I know there's other arguments as well, like, well, that market happens to be in this sort of yuppie part of town, high-end part of town, and, 
you know, it's not a part of town where I'm comfortable going. Well, people have started farmers markets in other parts of towns where, you know, maybe other where other that are more culturally appropriate, better suited to people in lower income neighborhoods, and they're providing them in, with substantial incentives to shop there. So I, I feel like you know people are working very hard to address some of those shortcomings. And I, I make this point in the book that, you know, everybody is trying to try to um, address those gaps in our food system so that everybody can participate in a good food movement. Now, some are doing it better than others. Mm-hmm. No one has no one has succeeded completely. But the point was that everybody is trying. You know, they're they're doing what they can and they're doing the best they can. And they're going to keep struggling until they find the right solution. But let's also keep in mind that the right solution isn't just with food. It's also going to be about, you know, poverty. It's going to be about wages. It's going to be about, um, you know, income and wealth inequalities in the U.S. that are really underlying a lot of our problems. So we can't necessarily pin the blame on food for, uh, you know, creating something that sometimes looks a little elitist. All right. Um, Okay, we're going to take a uh, really quick commercial break and hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, um, we're going to continue our conversation with Mark Winnie and maybe even talk a little bit about millennials. Stay tuned. All right. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. And we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Mark Winnie, author of Food Town USA, Seven Unlikely Cities That Are Changing the Way We Eat. Okay, Mark, before the break, I uh, teed up the conversation on millennials. And as a millennial, I was super excited to read that you had a really, a little bit of a different take on on uh, what, you know, what we kind of represent to food. I feel like you're welcoming us. <laughs> Oh, not just welcoming you. I think you're necessary to uh, revitalization. We we love that. <laughs> I speak for need, all my we people. We need you. We need you badly. Tell so us. That was, t- can that you tell us point. why? Yeah. Yeah. Partly, part I have a millennial of my own, um, so that maybe that partly a part what inspired me. But what I found, and this was not something I was looking for. It was maybe the biggest surprise of my research was the number of millennials who were moving back to these cities uh, that I was writing about. Moving back, meaning they grew up there and had, you know, maybe gone through the usual sort of experience of going to college and then, um, you know, not coming home because they were disillusioned with home. Mm -hmm. But then at some point, they turned around and decided to come back, partly because they saw opportunities in these cities. Uh, and that was it was exciting. They were often the people coming up with new ideas for new businesses. Uh, they were often the staff in some of the nonprofit organizations, including this economic development organization I was telling you about, mm-hmm. uh, who were you know driving driving the process. Um, it was rather it was rather startling actually to see so many young people um, taking on positions of some power and some influence. Um, I mean, some of it, in Youngstown, Ohio, at Youngstown is one of was definitely the most troubled city that I visited, and it was it is a struggling place. It has a lot of strikes against it, and I do hope it comes back. And in what but, in what ways can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, they've they've had um, they've been they, they 
they were first of all they were they were victimized by uh, the steel industry, which closed down the Youngstown steel plant that closed down in the 1970s, <clears throat> knocked about 20 or 30,000 people out of work. Uh, more recently, the Lordstown uh, General Motors plant, assembly plant, which is right next door to Youngstown, uh, closed and laid off 2,000 people. So there's very few large employers now in the Mahoney Valley, which is where Youngstown is located. Uh, poverty levels are very high. They have the highest, one of the highest black infant mortality rates in the country. Um, they just closed their daily newspaper. The Vindicator was just shut down, uh, I think it was a few weeks ago. So it's like been one problem after the other. But surprisingly, these young people are coming back. Um, part of it, I found out, was that homes were selling uh, for $15,000, wow. <laughs> as low as $15,000, wow. you could buy yourself not a new home, but a home, yeah. uh, and definitely a fixer-upper, but you could get, you know, you couldn't get a better deal than that anywhere that I know of. So that, that plus, they, there was a commitment. I was really an idealism that I want to come back, and I want to make a difference. Um, and there's a few small benefits, like maybe I can get a cheap home, but most of the people are saying, I'm, I'm here, I'm going to stick it out, and I'm going to try to make this a better place. And that was enormously inspiring to, to run into that. There was a group in Youngstown called the Returning Citizens of of Youngstown, <laughs> and uh, I thought, and that was a it was a it was a black run organization, and they were primarily working in the in the African American neighborhoods around um, in Youngstown, and they were working specifically with them to try to you know to try to encourage people who had left. It was almost a diaspora of of citizens that had left Youngstown, who they were now trying to bring back in. Um, so that was that was often the story. And even in places like Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, where another steel town that went downhill in the 90s, but had some good economic development activities to bring it, help bring it back to life. But food and the arts being a very important part of its revitalization was often driven by younger people, younger people who are coming in and saying, we want a community that, you know, is fun to be in, has a good good cultural life, has a good arts community, and also has great food. Uh, but they were the ones who were leading the charge in many cases. So we are not just about taking, you know, Instagram pictures of, of food and, you know, going out right. to eat. <laughs> There's more you're to not, this You're not just generation. a self-absorbed yes. um, you know, I, All of the my, other either my way. I, yeah. I only I only want to work when I want to. Kind of people. No, I think there's probably I found a lot of people who were uh, very inspiring. Well, thank you. That made my day. Um, as if it, <laughs> I'm like taking it personally. Um, um, okay, I promised earlier that we're going to talk about Boise, Idaho, because uh, I. I really love this chapter and I want to kind of, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about, you know, the positive things that are going on there, especially since, I mean, just at the start, you just to kind of give our readers, well, I'll, I will let you do it as the author. Can you give our readers context? You point to a couple things in particular that really highlight how conservative of a state um, that Idaho is. Yeah. I mean, one thing was that the city of Idaho, excuse me, city of Boise passed a, an ordinance of banning plastic bags, you know, like a lot of cities have been doing. And um, the state uh, legislature overrode, overrode them, set, you know, with what they, with, which is with what is called a preemption, which basically says that the state is the only uh, entity that's allowed to make those kinds of regulations with respect to the environment. And so, they won't. Sort of, right. <laughs> so they did some, yeah, right. They won't make regulations. Yeah. They won't make any, they, you know, the only good regulation is no regulation yeah. in Boise, and rather in Idaho. There was another a city, another small city not far away, that shortly after the uh, Katrina hurricane ha- actually passed an ordinance that said that people should should own a gun. You know, you you should own a gun, not that you. <laughs> and they amazing. and they and they did it for uh, self defense, thinking that they were going to be overrun by these refugees from uh, Hurricane Katrina. Um, so and there are other examples astounding. of rather bizarre behavior, um, but 
you know, when you, you, you know that and you sort of fly into the city and you say, oh, my God, am I safe here? And, but you find right away that Boise is a very welcoming place, very progressive place. Um, they're, they're surrounded by, I mean, one area that's sort of a key indicator is development. I mean, Boise is becoming very popular. So the demand on land and, you know, just at the, at the city's perimeter is becoming uh, fairly, fairly stressful. And it's, but it's also, so it's driving farmland out of business and so that people can put up uh, subdivisions. So the city is very interested in protecting the farmland, uh, but of course the developers don't want any interference mm-hmm. in that, in what they can do. And uh, you know their idea, land is you know, the highest and best use, which is to put up a subdivision. So there's a bit of a struggle going on in in between you know the city and those outside of the city, who of course developers would be very highly supported and. Uh, by uh, state government, which you know doesn't never met a developer they didn't like. <laughs> it's true, right? So that was that. That's the contrast. You sort of the world. And I was always uh, talking to one advocate there who's been a lifelong advocate. Really, you got some real heroes in that city. I mean, I, I think of somebody as a hero who has been in the same place for a long time and keeps plugging away at trying to do good. And so one of these people said, you know, out there, just outside of the city, there's the bear. And I said, what do you mean, the bear? I said, all those forces that are, like, conservative and money-driven and don't care about natural resources or food or low-income people. And we have to we have to keep our heads down and not poke the bear too hard but uh, so that we can keep plugging away and doing what we're doing and making incremental progress. So it was always like, this sort of the saying, don't poke the bear, don't poke the bear, mm-hmm. uh, which was sort of driving their work. And um, yet they're getting bolder and uh, as, I, as they have more success and they have some really good leaders. Um, that, was, that was one of the more inspiring political people that I met was a city councilwoman named uh, Elaine, Elaine Clegg, who was actually the president of the Boise City Council. And she's been an environmental act, started out as an environmental activist, uh, going back 20 or 30 years, trying to protect a lot of land around the, the city's perimeter and especially wetlands. And, um, slowly kind of came into her own as, as an activist, uh, ran for elected office and now she got elected and now she's the president of the city council. Mm-hmm. And she has been responsible for some very progressive planning legislation. Uh, that that really addresses sustainability, protecting farms and farmland, and encouraging uh, people to grow more of their own food, encouraging development of restaurants and you know more food related activity in and around neighborhoods, so that it's not just a district. You know, you don't you don't just have the restaurant district here, and then all the other people in the neighborhoods are far away. She wants to see that integrated throughout the city. So you know, very much. You're very thoughtful about the quality of life in a place and how food and a healthy environment can really make for a very attractive quality of life. And again, going back to the idea of helping our own, um, she she actually was very helpful in getting the city to put up money for a double up bucks program for farmers markets. So you know, there's which is unusual for have the city itself to put up money right. for that purpose. Right. So, you know, I love, I love the contrast. I love it when, you know, there's, you know, people almost like they, you know, they, they feel that they're under threat, but they, they're going to keep at it anyway, no matter what. What is the, yeah, what is the ability to scale, though? I mean, that was my, my question when you talked about this concept of, like, don't poke the bear, but then how is it, how are we ever going to, you know, make these movements bigger and really kind of start to shift like the political uh, landscape of a state like Idaho. I mean, that might be really far down the road, but I think it's, I think it's certainly a little ways down the road. Um, (laughs) I think, but scalability in general, right? Like the ability to translate. I think you see this in a lot of places around the country where, um, you know, there's been migrations of population. That was what I didn't, look at my population movement as carefully as I would like to. It stimulated my interest in it because clearly 
people are moving to Boise because the quality of life is much better than it is in, let's say, Portland or mm-hmm. Seattle, where prices are way too high. Mm-hmm. I mean, the chefs I spoke to in Boise were moving there because they the marketplace was too crazy in Portland, and they wanted to be in a place that was sort of up and coming, like Boise. Yeah, I think that I think that you're going to start to see these demographic shifts, uh, which are going to then push, and you're seeing these kind of shifts in places like New Hampshire, which used to be, you know, completely a red state. Now, with people who've moved out of Boston into Southern New Hampshire, have you know, are much vote Democrat, Democratic, and they are um, you know certainly more interested in government playing a um, responsible role in trying to help you know, with regulations and uh, making sure that people's needs are met. Uh, and you see other. I saw that I, the demographic shift was was evident in Jacksonville. They um, had. You know, the new businesses are moving in. There were lower prices, but they were bringing in a, a pe- they were bringing in people and professionals who were looking for good food. You know, they wanted yeah. they wanted a certain quality of life that they associated with good food, and that was partly driving the shift. And it's also beginning to influence the politics. Um, so while it's going to take a little longer in Idaho, um, I think that you are going to definitely begin to see that shift. I mean, I I also worked with other mayors in in um, throughout Idaho, some small town mayors who were very keen on uh, what they could do to elevate their respective food scenes, uh, start food policy councils. What were how could city government, even a even a city with only ten thousand people, how could it step up to actually make a difference? So. Food is a, I always refer to food as a gateway. It's a gateway to social change. It's a gateway to political change. It's a gateway often to environmental protection and enhancement. And um, in Idaho, I definitely saw where, um, you know, food was being used as a, as a gateway to political change. Um, speaking of kind of gateways and, and using food to create a change, I'm wondering, so you talk about social capital and compassion as being um, factors that affect, um, they, you know, they affect how other factors play out on the ground and in really a robust food movement. And I'm wondering, I mean, I just, I think that compassion is like, again, not to be so pessimistic, but like completely lacking in a way that I don't know if we've ever seen this before. Um, so what, my question to you is what is food's role specifically in just creating compassion? How can we do that with food? Well, I mean, just the fact that we sit down at a table together and we break bread together, um, you know, companion is a, you know, a, the word companion or companionship and is, you know, comes out and come, as well as compassion comes out of the Latin, you know, calm with and pan bread, breaking, breaking bread together, literally. So I think at that very sort of almost, you know, at that very elemental level, I think that food has the ability to create compassion it certainly creates empathy if some if somebody is hungry there's no better way for us to feel uh, some empathy for them and to feel like we have to stand up we should stand up and do something none of us can really tolerate the notion of somebody else being hungry especially if they're nearby especially if they're in our community I think maybe the best example I found you know, the more interesting ones was in Portland Maine where there's a mission or a, uh, a mission and uh, homeless shelter program called Preble Street, and they they are the largest shelter. They provide a lot of meals for, um, for some of the the most vulnerable people in not just in Portland but in Southern Maine, and um, it was also a city that's been hit hard by the opioid epidemic. In the numbers they were giving me about the what was happening were astounding. Now. You know, a few years ago, you would have one opioid death a year. Um, about two years ago, you were starting to have it once a month. Now you're having one death every week. Yeah. And so it's been that kind of escalation. But what they do is they specifically use food as a way to bring people into their program and into their shelter and into their meal, meal sites um, to find out what people's problems are and try to get go deeper into what the source of their addiction is and to help them get other services. I mean, food is just the starting place. You know, how do I get housing? How do I get a job? How do I get 
the um, the the medical and psychological services that I need in order to shake my addiction. Um, so that when I say food, I mean so they're they're being compassionate in the sense that food is a way to feed people, but it's also a way for us to try to get to the root causes of some of these problems. And they even took it further. Took it to, they elevated it to a political level where they were able to actually mobilize the people who were most affected by opioid addiction to the point where they could go to the state capitol and advocate for themselves. Oh, wow. So they, so they would go and they would speak at legislative hearings saying, we do not have enough services mm-hmm. in the state of Maine to be able to address this problem, which is severe, where people are literally dying on our streets. Um, and so That's food was... a Food was the beginning of a whole escalation of much more robust activities, and uh, including self-help. Yeah, and that's, gosh, that's so empowering. That's a great story. Um, okay, so we have to wrap up in just one minute, but um, I think a good thing to do as we wrap up is, um, and you write about this in your book at the end, if one day you are elected mayor... And by the way, I'm wondering if you're going to run for elected office anytime. I would vote for you, Thank you. Thank you very <laughs> for much. the record. Um, that might be the only vote I get. I highly doubt that. <laughs> if you were to, to be mayor, what are some of the things that you would do in a perfect yeah. world to create a better food system? Well, I think, first of all, planning and planning and economic development. I'm going to say, what is the impact of food on my community? What are all the ways that people get food? How do they, you know, create economic activity, transactions that take place? What's the total value of my food economy? And recognize it and understand it and begin to understand how I, or or indicate how I can leverage as much of that power as possible to improve the overall economy. Um, you know, putting food on the public agenda is the term that I uh, is, is the way I like to express it. So that everything I'm doing, every function within City Hall, uh, has a food component. Um, the other, uh, you know, just just the idea of public procurement. How much money do I spend as a city or a county or a state every year for public uh, purposes, such as schools and prisons and hospitals? How much of that can I direct to local businesses, not just farms, which is good, and, but also uh, you know, local coffee roasters, bakers, um, dairies, uh, you know, processors, you know, so that I'm really thinking about how I can continue to add value to my economy by supporting local food uh, businesses. I, I, use that. I think the one thing that's really important is I talk about appointing somebody from my staff as the minister of celebration and festivalization. Mm-hmm. And as I'll do that. To, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to raise my hand for that right now. You sound like you'd be a good candidate. <laughs> somebody who's, who's going to stand up and say, it was going to celebrate our city and our city's culture and our food, our food culture um, in, in many different ways, you know, out on the street, um, having lots of events and holding up food as part of our identity of who we are, what makes us special. And I think City Hall has responsibility to, sh- to put the spotlight on everything related to food. So that's my, that's my your platform stump speech. I love it. I'm in. You've got my vote. Um, okay, so just one, one last question um, for you is just a kind of a call to action for people uh, listening today. What would you like to impart upon them in the last few moments of the show? Um, besides, like, for me, I'm thinking, like, I think I need to move back to Detroit now. <laughs> that's, the, that's my next step. But for everybody else, uh, what would you say? I'd say look for opportunities to contribute. If, you're, you know, if you feel like you got an idea for something, some food business or, or a nonprofit-type enterprise, charitable enterprise, go for it. You know, look for people who are going to who might support you and might be your partners in that endeavor. Go to City Hall and say, hey, uh, Mr. Mayor, members of the City Council, are you paying attention to food um, in the way that you need to? You know, what? tell us what you're doing. Tell us, can you tell us how much your food, our food economy is worth? And mm-hmm. if you can't, I'd like you to do the research to figure that out. Um, the other thing is that joining up and being a part of being a network. I mean, even as much as I raise up the importance of the individual, 
you know, the community still is important and comes first. And these things, you know, we have to reach out and be a part of a community network in all of those things. So, you know, participate, you know, and but also do it in conjunction with other people. And uh, that would be really the, those are the, some of the key recommend. And also invite your millennials back, you know, get them back in there or make sure that your, their needs are being met. They're reasonable needs, but they're <laughs> certainly there. Their needs for spiritual growth. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. All right. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. But, Mark, thank you so much for coming on the show. This was a real Thanks treat. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for their generous support, as well as our Eating Matters intern, Julia Devon, and our show engineer, Jeet Paul. Show music is by Tim Archer. All episodes are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast, wherever they're found. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave me a comment. Let me know what you think. I'm Jenna Liute, and thank you so much for listening. Eating Matters is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right-hand side of our homepage. Thanks for listening.